Hi, I'm Adnan Mahmutovic, and this is Love and Its Discontents podcast. My guest today is Joy Manesiotes, uh, a good friend of mine and uh, someone whose work I admire a lot. Uh, briefly about Joy, uh, she is the author of three collections of poems, A Short History of Anger, which won the New Measure Poetry Prize, Revoke, and They Sing to Her Bones, which won the New Issues Poetry Prize. Currently, she is staging a short history of anger at different uh, festivals and universities in the US and Europe. Her poems and essays have appeared in uh, numerous literary journals and anthologies, including the American Poetry Review, Poetry, and Poetry International, as well as in translation. And Joy sent me some titles in uh, other languages which I cannot uh, read. Uh, <laughs> that would be hopeless. I don't want to ruin that for everyone. Uh, she is uh, previously the Edith R. White Distinguished Chair in Creative Writing at the University of Dreadlands. She teaches in the MFA in a writing program at Osu Cascades and serves on the editorial board of Early Press. Joy, welcome to Love and Its Discontents. Thank you, Adnan. Thank you for inviting me. Pleasure. Um, we are... Uh, going to talk a lot about your uh, book, A Short History of Anger. Uh, we, that That's going to be like the main text we, we will go to. Of course, you, uh, you can um, uh, draw on all your writing or any other writing uh, that uh, that comes to mind about, uh, about the subjects. And um, before we begin, I just want to say something about this uh, this book. Uh, I have uh, I heard parts of it during the process of writing. Mm -hmm. uh, times you've uh, staged it uh, in different places, so uh, I feel privileged to, to to have been a part of that process, to have heard different you know moves and uh, and the way in just seeing you adapting it live like uh improvising mm. uh, that that's it's just the work of beauty it's, it's so much pleasure in uh, in following those kinds of processes and then seeing of course the final uh, version which is uh, which is printed uh, and um, you know that from the beginning i've been so drawn to uh, to this work that uh, it's always touched me so deeply uh, and um uh, I cannot recommend it enough to everyone. Like this, it, it's it's so uh, beautiful, uh, moving, uh, intellectually stimulating. But this is something I I I, I wonder if uh, you think this is correct, uh, or maybe it reflects the way you were working working on it. But for me, it's one of those books which uh, I uh, when I read it, it strikes straight to the heart. It just kind of makes my entire body, I have a bodily kind of uh, response to it, like, a, mm. like at that level. But both of us have worked in, in the academia, right? So we have, uh, you know, we, 
in our analysis, usually kind of there, there is this kind of like first we love something and then we analyze it. Yeah? And then uh, we engage the critical mind and we, we have all these go-to theories and all that stuff, right? Uh, yes. And usually, like, even if you love books, the many books I have analyzed that I love. But what I find special about yours is the fact that even though I'm stimulated intellectually and I, and I reflect on it so much, but at the same time, I cannot, it, it has this gravitational pull to the heart, mm. which I cannot kind of disregard from at any moment in my thinking. And for me, that's, that's really special that I, I'm anchored to my heart throughout my thinking process. Uh, so I hope that was uh, okay to kind of characterize it in that way. And I don't know if that, that's how you worked on it, if that was something you had in mind. Well, I really appreciate that because, in fact, um, what I was trying to do, what I was hoping the work would do would be to generate experience, not just talk about an experience, right? Mm-hmm. And so, and I was trying to figure out how to approach that material um, <clears throat> in all its layers and all of its, uh, you know, with the historical burden of the, of the events that happened and then living through and with intergenerational trauma and all the things that it tries to, to, um, I was trying to express it rather than um, to, and to create a, an experience of what it would be, of what it was like, to live through it, to in, at, at many different stages, people actually, I mean, I didn't actually live through it. I lived through the effects of it. So, and I will say, by the way, I just want to back up and say that you were the audience member that I was most concerned about. Oh, wow. wow. <laughs> concerned in a good that. way that if, if you responded to it, then I knew that it was working because you've lived through something similar to this and I have not. Right. And so I wanted to know that I wasn't crossing any lines or that I somehow I created something that you could participate in, in a way that you just described. And thank you very much for that, that um, description, because it, it, it is very um, accurate in terms of what I was trying to do. And I, and I, I did use lament structure. I did Mm -hmm. think about lament from ancient Greece forward and, um, so I was really crea- trying to create a lament um, in a modern day, you know, a modern day version of a, of a lament. So, um, yeah, so I was really after the felt sense of living through historical events and their aftermath um, for generations, actually. Yeah, what an achievement, because this is really difficult. And uh, I, I didn't know about this. I mean, this is the first time you're telling me. And I I don't know if I had, had I been aware of it, maybe I would have thought about it differently. So, uh, but what a, a beautiful kind of uh, uh, moment of, of sharing that, that uh, uh, in, in, right now, I mean, after, after so much time, oh, wow, amazing. Um, before we uh, go into uh, into the book and and uh, all these other things, I want to because this is a podcast on love, and uh, in a sense, the subject is uh, is tough. Uh, it it is uh, you know your book is about uh, trauma, it is about genocide, it's about those uh, 
uh, those really, uh, really heavy things, things that we have seen seeing even now. Uh, so it's uh, like this. Uh, but what is a love for you? Uh, how, how would you define? Such a tough question, right? You know this, right? You know that it's a tough question. I, you know, I think, of course, we all know there are all kinds of different kinds of love, right? I mean, romantic love, filial love, parental love, um, love of friends and chosen family, love of culture, love of art, love of literature, right? So, so many different. Um, so it's multidimensional. And for that reason, it's really hard to define it precisely. Every definition that I come up with seems reductive to me in a certain way. Um, but, but in thinking about that question, what I finally, I think, land on is that love is a form of attention. Um, that it's a form of attention that we give to each other, that we, um, you know, it's a, it's, that can be personal. It can also be, um, uh, of one's group or one's culture or one's family, right? Um, can be one person, but I think we rarely experience someone's full attention. And when we do, it can be rather, well, it could be rather terrifying, but it could also be rather revelatory, right? And so I think in some ways, love is that kind of fully showing up and giving one's attention to something. Um, and that means showing up in all ways, right? Not just um, intellectually, not just, you know, so, so that it's a whole person kind of attention that we give to each other um, or to a situation. Yeah. Oh, that is, that is wonderful. And in that way, it doesn't depend on uh, how you feel at any, uh, at any moment. It is not driven by, like that you have to feel it uh, in order to give someone attention. It's, it's a deliberate, it's sure it's like you, it's an effort. Yeah. It's a choice. I think, um, maybe not conscious all the time, but it is a choice. Um, and I think, you know, I, I was, um, reading about forgiveness actually, and thinking a lot about forgiveness. And, um, I was, I was actually reading about the, well, it doesn't matter, but anyway, um, um, one of the things that I, that I came across was someone, uh, a group of people who had been terribly wronged and they forgave their, their, it was actually their children had been shot and they, um, chose to forgive the person who did it or the parent of the person who did it and work together with them. And part of what, this was an Amish community here. And, um, part of what they said is that um, forgiveness is, is a choice every day. You know, it's, it's, it's not something you do once and it's over. It's a process, right? And I think that's true of love too. It's a process. I mean, as much as I may love my parent, child, spouse, whatever, friend, there are going to be moments when I don't like them very much, right? <laughs> or they don't like me very much. Or, you know, the deeper you get to know someone, there's parts, you know, so, but, but love is a, is a decision, right? It's a decision and a process. And it's a decision to say, I'm in this with you and I accept you and I will as you say, may not feel it every minute of of every day, but I'm going to root myself in it nonetheless. 
Yes, that, that that really resonates with me. I don't, you you don't know this, but I often uh, um, quote uh, Raymond Carver's uh, "What We Talk About When We Talk About Love." There is this line where he's uh, where uh, one of the characters uh, says uh, that in addition to being in love, we also like each other. Yeah, <laughs> right, right. <laughs> Yeah, so it's it's very possible to be in love with, without ever liking each other. But I I, lo- I like how you say this that uh, well there are days where I really don't like you, you know, right. but I'm st- I still love you. <laughs> yeah, yes. yeah, uh, th- uh, that's wonderful. Um, if we go to um, um, I suppose the main um, subject here is uh, in short history of anger is uh, the relationship between love and heritage. Mm. And so uh, maybe you can tell us a little bit about that and where, where you're coming from here and, uh, and how you're uh, viewing it. Um, well, if, you know, if I, if I take that notion of attention, I mean, you know, I, I, I think um, I grew up in, you've probably had a very similar or uh, parallel kind of experience where I grew up in America, in, inside a Greek community in an American culture. So I was living in two cultures at one time, always. Um, and that changed as I grew up and we, we moved and we became more assimilated to, I mean, I was born here. Um, but, um, but I had two, I was negotiating two cultures almost all the time. So I was very aware of the fact that there were different cultures, right? I mean, it's easy in the United States to not be so aware of that, right? Um, so, um, and there was a way in which my Greek American culture was my home. That was where, that's where my family was. That's where my social life was. That's where all of that was, right? And so, um, and there was also expectation that came with that, right? Um, and then when I, as I grew up and moved away from that culture, I had to make it, I st- I saw myself making choices to bring parts of that culture back into my life. And so I think that that's part of, um, um, you know, that, that culture becomes a kind of home and then that's a place we rest. It's also can be a place of conflict and a place of many other things, right? Uh, difficulties, but at essence, it's a place where we can rest. And um, because I was living and do live in a culture that is not a Greek culture or a Greek American culture that much really anymore. Um, again, it was about a choice. It's about choice, a choice of, of attention. How much attention am I going to put on this? How many of these traditions am I going to pull forward in my life? And, and that, and I do think tradition in culture is a form of love, right? It's a form of, of, um, safekeeping of the culture. And so, um, I don't know that I'm answering your question very well, very well, but, um, I do think that, you know, engagement in community and in culture, while it's, um, maybe it's a, you know, fairly, naive thought that engagement in community is actually the, the source of or a form of love of culture. I do think it's kind of essential, right? Mm. Um, yeah. And, and in a sense, your book is about uh, a historical event which was uh, so central to uh, 
to uh, uh, well to m- many peoples, not just the Greek, but the the Greeks. Uh, uh, you are. Um, dramatizing the events of Smyrna and the genocide, uh, mm-hmm. uh, displacement, uh, movements of people, uh, all kinds of things. And um, why re- revisit this event in terms of like this relationship to, to, uh, uh, to heritage? Uh, how, is, how is this an act of love uh, in, in your mind or how did you approach this? Well, the part of it is that I, it was my mother's family story. So um, I grew up, it's not that they talked about it a lot, but I grew up with an awareness of it. Um, And I knew, I had a felt kind of physical sense of it. And I never really understood how was it that I had this physical sense of something I didn't actually live through. Um, um, But I, I come back to that to that idea of attention that, um, you know, and bearing witness. And so I, you know, I, I didn't know that I was going to write this. I didn't plan to write it. Um, I started to write a poem about it and the poem, um, just kept growing and kind of busting out of its form. And then it took me, you know, I took it apart. I don't know, three times, three times. I think you saw some different iterations of it actually. Um, and reconfigured it because I was trying to find its form and, um, and it, it turned out that it had to create its own form. But, um, along the way, I think that, um, it, it, it became somehow necessary. And so I guess, um, that's what I would say about it in terms of love. I mean, you know, in the face of, genocide and and all, all the atrocities how do how do how does one show up how do we um how do we bear witness how do we um make a space for it um and i think that is an act of love i i, I um i was recently at a jewish museum and there was um, a holocaust survivor you know there was a quote by one of them that said don't be a bystander Find, find what you can do and do it. And so for me, what I could do was inhabit this material and see if I could help, um, not keep it alive so much, but, uh, create an experience of it that might resonate for people. Yes. And, and in that way, uh, it's an act of love, not just speaking back to the heritage, not like paying back to that heritage uh, out of some, um, of course, there is the pull of the family and uh, ethnicity and all the all those all those things, but it's much bigger than that. Uh, the, the, the love here seems to be kind of uh, break um, through those kinds of definitions, those borders. Uh, the, the, I, and that's something you do throughout the book quite a lot. Uh, you you speak of, uh, well, you speak of like this transition uh, in history from where people define themselves in certain ways, and now have to define themselves in other ways. Uh, mm-hmm. So uh, so you have those moments where you, for instance, talk about uh, people, let's say maybe uh, different religions or. Uh, cultures, different uh, languages, to having to uh, use uh, national labels. 
and and the kind of uh, rift that that creates. Uh, so uh, in that way, it seems to me that it's kind of really opens it up to to a much bigger thing than uh, than just kind of uh, the pull of the family, uh, the pull of the nation, the pull of the yeah. One of the experiences that I've had in doing the staging of the piece at, in different communities is I've been struck every time by how many people, and we always have a conversation with the audience afterward because it's pretty intense material for them to, to experience. And they want, we want to have a, a, a conversation and it, it's inevitable that people say, um, I'm from Syria and this is my story. I'm from Africa. This is my story. I'm from, you know, all, all over the world. Um, and unfortunately, you know, genocide seems to be our default position as a, as a, as, as a people. And, um, so I don't understand that, but I think that was also part of what I was trying to begin to, to understand. And so, um, even though this was, as you say, specifically, you know, um, in Asia Minor and it was the, um, Ottoman Greek subjects who, um, experienced it, I think it's much more universal than that, unfortunately. Um, and so, um, it, it, and it wasn't just the pull of my family that made me want to keep working on it. It was the, how the entire, um, series of events resonated and echoed out and, uh, in so many hundreds of ways, which is probably true of any one of these situations, but that this was the one I was focusing on. Yes. Um, Yes, indeed. I mean, uh, just the topic of love and genocide—that's that—that that in itself is uh, is so heavy. Uh, no light material there, uh, but at the, at the same time, there is a uh, the the the. I mean, the title is a short history of anger, and, and yet uh, what I'm thinking of it, and uh, I'm it's like there's not a lot of anger in this. You know, I'm not feeling the anger, and so. Uh, right. and, uh, Someone once said to me, "It should be called a short history of sorrow." Yeah. <laughs> yeah. So, I think that the title is is perfect. That is also your name is joy. So joy and anger. It's like I cannot imagine you angry. So that's something like I'm sure you've been angry. You know. And, yes, uh, yeah. I, I do get angry. I I, I I think all of us. It's just that like uh, uh, I. Uh, uh, it's very hard. Maybe I need to experience that. <laughs> yeah, it's, I, I can be rather formidable. I'm not sure you want I mean, you want you want to experience okay. that really. <laughs> uh, well, let's see. Uh, but that is a part of the love as well, you know, to to be able to um, uh, you know experience and express anger and um, uh, and take that. Uh, usually, we tend to be most angry at people we love and uh, or express it more more freely where we feel at home. Yeah. Well, you know, I was yeah. I was also thinking about the ancestral anger. Yes. You know, yeah. the generational, cultural, ancestral anger specifically between Greeks and Turks, but we can name you know, we could slot in any number of different people's names there, titles there. Um and then how the people in the moment expressed so much care for each other, the people who were living there had um, I'm sure there were conflicts, but they had created a, a, a very vibrant 
um, community. They had, they had created a vibrant, vibrant city where they were very much, um, friends and neighbors and, and, and business associates and they would get together and they had these, you know, they had a lot of, um, shared culture and shared love. And when they were torn apart, I think both sides were completely stunned by it, right? And there are stories after story after story about them helping each other, trying to help each other, even though the state was telling them that they could not do that, that they were putting themselves at risk, et cetera. Um, and so I was thinking a lot about otherness, like how do we make someone else other and how do we, and how do we go from being someone's neighbor to all of a sudden having that person be the other, right? And in the space of a couple of hours. Um, and so um, I, I, I think the title comes from the generational anger, the generational um, conflict and hatred um, and difficulty that there has, there's, I don't know how much of it, of it still exists, but did exist then. Um, I think people have been sort of consciously trying to, to be more mindful about it, but. Um, and, and I'm thinking of what you said about love, that it's an effort, that is attention and so on. It seemed to me that anger uh, that you inherit requires a lot more work a lot more mm. effort to keep it alive. So it's really unnatural. Like this is this kind of reinforcement of, uh, of anger, uh, where, uh, uh, and so what, you know, you, you need fuel for it. You constantly need to fuel it somehow. Right. And well, and it also is, I mean, I think anger also creates energy, right? So it can be a little bit addictive. Yes. It can be a little <laughs> bit, uh, um, appealing because it creates all this energy but then it's uh, but then it's spent right and then, spent, and then yeah. yeah and then then there's the, the aftermath of the anger which is destruction right usually and so it's not it's not helpful um to but but i had to very consciously um i don't know i mean maybe you did this as well i had to very con make conscious choices about how i was going to um not carry the anger forward, um, the cultural anger, and try to put it down if possible. Oh, I, I agree one hundred percent with that. That it's it, it's so counter uh, that that kind of energy is uh, is so detrimental to the creative process. Mm -hmm. uh, it, it really uh, it really destroys it. So uh, I I think you're right. Uh, at some you know, for a moment, it may look like, oh, there's a lot of energy here, right? But then when you realize, no, that's not sustainable energy, that is, right. that's a wrong kind of energy uh, entirely. And you know? so, uh, so it's, um, and uh, I mean, what you're saying is that some of the things that you're, that you're feeling, of course, you know, we, we have people feel that you, you say you didn't experience things uh, yourself, but you have them in your body, and that kind of heritage of uh, of all those things is uh, is in the body itself. Uh, well, one of the things that was really fascinating to me because it was just beginning to be uh, available in mainstream media the the study of epigenetics which is you know there's a there are many critics of it and it's you know there are questions about it but there has been 
um, some scientific research that supports the idea that uh, those kinds of traumas, any kind of trauma, is passed genetically, not just psychologically, right? And so um, that the that the DNA itself isn't changed, but there are there's a process called methylation, which so that so that the the how the DNA tells the cell to act, how the methylation tells the cell to act gets changed. And it can be changed in either direction. It can be made better, right? I mean, you could t- take someone who has experienced trauma and erase some of that methylation, or you can create methylation. And so I, I was fascinated by that. My daughter, who's in medical school, tells me I'm oversimplifying this, but um, <laughs> of course, of course, <laughs> right, of course. Um, but from a creative standpoint, from a phys- you know, from a physical lived standpoint, from a from a felt sense, and then from an ima- from the in terms of the imagination, it was really fertile ground to explore to think about how we're passing this to each other through our genetic structures. Um, or kind of as ornaments to the genetic structure that can be then um, somehow um, affected, right? So, so that that was fascinating to me. And how to get that into a poem or into something into this hybrid piece? Because I, you know, as I said, I took it apart really three times and rebuilt it. I worked on it for eight years, I think. Um, so that that was really fascinating to me and how do i how do i work that in how do i make that part of this in a kind of lyric way because i was not trying to tell the story i was trying to do something else indeed indeed uh that, that that's quite right and that that's where the experience comes from and uh, what was fascinating to me was uh, exactly because you emphasized the fact that you didn't live it and yet the way you deal with it the way you describe it the way you work where the content and the form is, for me, uh, as if you have. And mm. uh, if I explain it this way, uh, a lot of times this um, kind of in heritage of trauma or the inheritance of trauma in the, the new generations, the, the, it seems to me uh, that uh, we can see a clear difference between the survivors uh, and and the new generations. They have it, but they are living it differently. So there's, they're far more prone to anger, uh, interesting. I would say. Mm-hmm. Uh, easily angry, uh, whereas whenever I've, uh, I've read uh, you know, books uh, by all kinds of survivors, we, we see you know, the Holocaust survivors uh, you know, and, and, and many others, that the, oftentimes there is this almost, it's almost as if they themselves are a little bit... Uh, they're wondering why am I not that angry, and why am I not hungry for revenge? Mm-hmm. Uh, so, so uh, sometimes they emphasize it. Sometimes they're kind of just thinking about it, or 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 completely just ignore. They don't talk about it. Uh, Elie Wiesel, I think, in in uh, in night, he he says towards the end of uh, of his memoir, like none of us felt like. Uh, angry and and wanting revenge and that's something that i feel as well whereas sometimes in the new generations we we, we can see a little bit of that kind of mm-hmm. uh, pull uh but you have none of that uh and uh, for me that's that's just a kind of an interesting way of uh, uh of of looking at it whether yeah 
Yeah, you know, um, I think that, you know, in the, in the book, there is this repeated, um, phrase, Zoe Semas, um, and, or Zoe Sasas, um, may their memories be eternal. I think every, um, culture has that phrase, how you express your, um, understanding or of someone else's grief. But Zoe Semas means, life to all of us who are here mourning together, who are left here mourning together. And it, it seemed to me that, um, that, that, that it was, it was, that was what was driving this work was the sense of how do I, how do I live with this in community? How do I, um, how do I? Yeah, well, we know revenge doesn't work. I mean, it is just that, doesn't work. It doesn't, it's just a yeah. history of revenge not working, right? And That's so, right. Yeah. it's not going to be helpful. Um, and and my my grandmother was angry at times about it, but she was. But they were also what they modeled for me was you live this moment as fully as you can, because you don't know what's happening in the next moment. And both, you know, and so that, that was what they modeled. They, they didn't go and they weren't looking backwards. They were looking forward. They were being in this moment. They weren't litigating the past anymore. Um, they were saying uh, how fortunate we are that we are here. Um, and they had, they carried great burdens. They carried great sorrows with them, but they, um, but they weren't they they didn't live inside their any their anger about it and so that's what was modeled to me even though they lost everything right but um they they didn't want that to be the definition of how they lived their lives and so i think that's what i that's what i learned because that's what i grew up inside of right so um that's an interesting point that you say about how y- younger people are Yes, it's interesting that they that they are more angry and they are demanding a certain kind of acknowledgement. Or, um, and that's really an interesting point, actually. Yeah, it seems to me what you were saying earlier about the um, witnessing and love as witnessing that the, uh, what you just described about the, about your. Uh, 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 grandma uh, is that uh, it's almost like the life just living the life is the uh, is the, the uh, is witnessing just living mm-hmm. is witnessing and that is an act of love you know just to live uh, and and be a witness is uh, is a huge effort and, uh, and an act of love itself to uh, to all that well I think also that um you know, by the time I came into my grandparents' lives, they were they they were many years past that experience, right? They were in their twenties when they fled, and um, so I think they had. I don't know what they were like when they first, you know, came to this country or what you know, but I do know that when I was working on the material, you know, a lot of it is. Um, especially in the face of all the atrocities and everything, you you know, we would rather turn away from it, right? We don't really want to see it. We don't want to have to show up and look at it. 
Um, and I, I was very aware of not wanting to use that material in any way to get attention or to hold the reader's attention. Um, that seemed really wrong to me. And so um, I didn't want any of it to be gratuitous, but I did want to be present. And I think that's the lesson that I learned from my grandparents was to be present, to show up, right, in whatever you're, wherever you are in your life, right? Um, and that that, and then that is a form of love, love of self, but also love of uh, the people who you are in your life or the people who you come in contact with. Um, and, that, and, you know, they made choices. They did things. They didn't talk about it. They just did things, right? My grandfather um, was really, in, he went by his intuition quite a bit, and he um, he had a little pie baking business in Pittsburgh, and he, right before the stock market crash, he pulled all of his money out of the banks and sold all of his stock. So he was actually very well off during the depression here and he would walk to work and he on his way to work if he met anyone who was out of work he took them to his little factory and gave them a job and on his way home from work if he met people who were hungry he brought them home and fed them he didn't talk about it you know he didn't make a big deal out of it he just did it and they did that in hundreds of ways in their lives right they they expressed an appreciation for being alive in ways or being more fortunate or being fortunate to be where they were in ways that they didn't make a big deal about. They just did it. Yeah. And when he died, actually like 200 people showed up at his funeral that the we didn't know because and I wasn't even there. I mean, I was a baby, but, um, I've, but my, my mother told me the story that 200 people came up at least and, to her, my, my aunt, my, my grandmother and said, your father helped me. That is, that is so beautiful. Uh, yeah. And so that was uh, what was modeled for me is you live it. You don't talk about it. You just live a, a choice, right. Yes. Or a series of choices that pushes back against the evil in the world. Yeah. And again, that is, that is the effort. There is a continuity of that that effort that you're consistent in, in in that. That's your decision. You made it, and and you uh, persist in uh, in doing it despite everything. Uh, mm -hmm. You're not going to get angry at someone, uh, and uh, you know deny them food or uh, or help. Uh, it, it's just like you flew. That, obviously, what what I see in your description is that. Uh, he saw this as his community. The way this, you right. described these communities before the war, before genocide, uh, so that, that there is that kind of taking care of each other, talking to each other, communicating. Uh, uh, there's huge diversity, uh, but uh, but there's no problem in you know communication and uh, living together and, and all these things. Uh, right. And in a sense, all of them are really showing a lot of love to to themselves, their families, uh, smaller and bigger communities. Whereas when uh, the nation state or in the, you know when it comes in and and demands a certain kind of love or loyalty, you see this loyalty. is so unnatural, right? This yeah. is not the love that uh, that you can um, express because you don't know what it is. Yeah. Well, and I, well, you know, I do know that when um, 
when they established the secular nationalist Turkey, which is what the, you know, uh, the young Turks wanted, you, the, those citizens had to, um, had to pledge their allegiance to that state. And it was very difficult for many of the Turkish Ottoman subjects. They did, they, you know, it was because they, they didn't define themselves by nationality and they, they felt like they had to in order to survive. And that kind of forced fealty doesn't often work out very well. I don't think, um, you know, it's interesting too, because the, the population exchange that happened after, um, after the, the destruction of Zmirna, you know, it was brokered by all these international powers, but nobody wanted to take responsibility for it, right? Because they all knew it was reprehensible, right? This idea that they were going to just pick people up and move them from one country to another like they were cattle or something. Um, and yet, and that, but that moment with, with all of the disaster that it created, it also defined something in, it was a huge change in Greek history. I mean, it was, it created a diaspora that, um, that the, the scope of the diaspora was so much bigger than it would have been in any, in any other situation. Um, so I, I think that that's the other thing is that, that, Greek culture was spread across Europe and to the United States in ways that it wouldn't have been if that population exchange hadn't happened. And so it's interesting, you know, one of the things I was trying to sort out was how those kinds of decisions made by, you know, 10 people in a room somewhere um, create movement of, of whole peoples, right? And, and, and redefine what the structures of different societies look like. I mean, it's, it's kind of mind boggling to think that, right? That they're making this kind of intellectual decision that then creates, um, a totally different world, world, um, within a country or, and so, uh, you know, the, the Greek Ottoman subjects ended up in all kinds of different countries, right? And so, and the people, the the Turkish Ottoman subjects who remained in Turkey had to pledge their allegiance to Turkey. I mean, it's a very different, right? It's if you think about that, what kinds of um, requirements there were in terms of um, each of those people's kind of um, what's the word that I want. Uh, pledging of their lives or investing in their lives, investing in their communities, investing in the country, investing in whatever, you know, where they, whichever society they ended up in or chose to be in um, after they were displaced. And nationalism seems to me to uh, take this uh, part from um, the definition of love as a sacrifice. Mm-hmm. Uh, and and perverts it in in such such ways, right? So yes, love does involve sacrifice and work and all the all those things, but it really perverts every part of the definition of uh, right of love, right? Uh, that, yeah, that's yeah. actually very it's a brilliant yeah. way of thinking about it because it's exactly what happens, I think. Yeah. Because yeah. in that, in, in th- those moments, like you don't know how to communicate and what it means for you to love. Um, you know your uh, your people, 
mm-hmm. what does it mean to love them? And uh, and then, of course, there is someone who tells you, like, okay, well, this is how you love them. This is not how you love them. We, we are seeing that unfolding now as well. Uh, we yeah. see this kind of r- ripping of... Uh, of let's uh, let's say the Jewish communities around the world, like uh, and and mm-hmm. how they kind of uh, uh, treat each other in a sense uh, from you know because of, of the situation. We see that in any country which has had um, we have it in Bosnia. I mean, I have friends who have written about Pakistan, for instance. There, there they had these big movements of peoples as uh, as well uh, migrations between the split between India and Pakistan. And mm-hmm. in the end, what happens is that um, that uh, this loyalty that you're supposed to show turns into oppression. Yeah. So you will oppress each other more within your own community almost than the other community. Uh, yeah. So it becomes yeah. internalized oppression. Mm-hmm. Yes. Yeah. yeah. And that, yeah. that's that's kind of the, the toxic uh, perversion of uh, of it. What I'm thinking of. Yeah. Absolutely. Uh, uh, which um, uh, I just love, like the way you you use it. I I, because uh, I've done it as well, where people identify with uh, the line of work uh, or something else. You know, the way they bake bread. Or mm-hmm. In contrast, it seemed to me that this uh, this um, uh, nationalist kind of way of uh, of uh, reshaping uh, love. Uh, is a contrast and to what I think is real, authentic love, and that's how I see it. I, I, for me, the definition and expression comes exactly because of the contrast to that uh, that which is not. Well, it's not possible to have the state decide, right? I no. mean, it's just not. It's the, no. it's yeah. And speaking of uh, communication, as, as that is a, that is a part of what community is, and um, and 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 what love is, I'm. I think it's so nice that you you, uh, you emphasize this over and over. The fact that people speak different languages, mm-hmm. they are multilingual, mm-hmm. and they communicate in different languages uh, in the sharing of. Um, uh, well, everything really. Uh, so, can you say something about that, like love and this kind of multilingualism, or um, yeah? Well, um, I mean, I, 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 I'm sorry to keep bringing this back to the personal, but, um, but I grew up. Everyone in my family, in my my parents, my grandparents, they all spoke five or six languages, and some of that was necessity. Right. Because they were immigrants. And so they they had to learn different languages because they lived in different countries. Um, But it it shaped, I think, how I think about language or how I experience language. And it's fascinating to me how um, how things are expressed in, you know, how you can say that if you say a word in four different languages that really there are shades of difference for what that actually means or what the felt sense of that is. But I do think that there's a way that, um, you know, I was, my grandmother spoke to me in French uh, when I was growing up. Um, And I was talking with someone 
about reclaiming that language, going back and relearning it because I've lost most of it and I've been studying it again. And I'm getting great pressure to learn Spanish instead for all kinds of other reasons, um, which is also a beautiful language. But I said, French is my heart. I mean, I, because it connects me to my grandmother and it connects me to when I was younger and it connects me. So I think that there's a way in which language, you know, is connection, right? I mean, it takes us back to, um, or continues forward, allows us to continue to bring something forward, um, by, by speaking or thinking or dreaming in that language. Um, and so I, I, and rather than have it be a barrier, I think it's it's more useful to think of language as um, as a connector. There's a moment in the in the short history where one of the people, because um, I was using quotes from oral histories, and um, and one person says, "My grandmother's mother, my mother's grandmother left eight hundred poems written in Cretan dialect. Yes. Yes, I love that. Yes. Yeah. But they're written in Arabic letters. Yeah. So it's, it's a Cretan Greek way of putting the syntax together, putting, you know, building the, the, the sentence structure and the thought, but it's written in Arabic. Um, and so I think that that's one of the ways that, um, multilingual you know that 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 actually connects us it allows us to weave together another culture which is the culture of language right and it, yes. but and that's coming from all these different places and that you know that in smyrna they would si- they would sing their christmas carols in four or five different languages together um so that everyone had a chance right <laughs> everyone yes. got to, got to have their so i that that's a way of sharing right it's a way of sharing and letting in other people so I, so i that's one of the ways i think that multi, you know being multilingual or having more languages at play makes the world larger and smaller at the same time right more intimate in some ways and also more expansive and I would hope that's what we want love to do for us to create intimacy and expansiveness. Um, yeah, I, I couldn't agree more because I, what you just said is is the line I, I remember is the one at Christmas with seeing carols in French, Greek, English, and Italian, uh, mm-hmm. uh, and in um, other places uh, that that is uh, that is emphasized as you said because that's something I recognize from my own history as well. Like so, so I will I remember finding some uh, old uh, like notebooks uh, which are in Bosnian, but written with arabic letters oh interesting uh, yeah so so you uh, so that was like so, so there would be different uh, ways of writing there was cyrillic latin there's uh, arabic uh, and and you can see that the kind of uh, movement uh, there's no need for, to have like one dominant language uh, one dominant as as a way of uh, you know identification it is quite okay to uh, you know, 
to communicate whichever way you can communicate i mean like right. i mean all of us who have uh, you know i remember you know becoming a refugee it's like you can't speak any other language and it's like what am i supposed to say how am i sp- asking me something i have no idea what they're saying you know uh and uh and then you know uh i I can't put two words together to save my life. Uh, And then uh, you communicate in some other way. So there's like always uh, you find a way to, to, to create an intimacy. And that, that I think is, uh, is great. Um, You know, in the, um, in, in the Greek church, there's a, um, there's a service on Easter morning. Mm -hmm. And, you know, in, and in Greek Orthodox church, there's, you have um, services at midnight you know, on Friday night and Saturday night and then on Sunday and everyone's been fasting for the whole weekend. And, you know, there's a lot of ritual that's part of it, but the service on Sunday morning is called the service of love. Mm-hmm. And they do the service in the language of every person who's in the church. Wow. So if there are Eritrean um, Orthodox people there, if there are, um, um, you know, uh, uh, Russian Orthodox people there, if there are um, Ukrainian Orthodox people there, if there are um, Greek Orthodox people there. So they make sure that they do some part of the service in every language that is represented in the room, which, and it's called the service of love. Oh, wow. That, that, that just makes my day. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, it's that, pretty great. <laughs> that is, that is so great. Absolutely. Yeah. That is a huge. That that you know what's what we see there is that you identify it. You know, you're not you're just like oh, there's a crowd before me and I'll talk, mm-hmm. right? You you right. really pay attention like who's there and uh, and to identify where they're coming from, what what they're all about. Uh, so uh, if we say that okay, what they have in common, uh, the the faith, the Greek Orthodox faith, uh, but still there there are huge, there are differences. And we need to kind of emphasize those differences in a positive way uh, for, for the sake of sharing and communication. It's, I mean, it's, it's, again, that sense of being present for each other, right? Yes. Of, being, of giving attention, showing up in a certain That's way. Right. Yeah. What a great way of, of, um, of showing attention or paying attention. Mm. Can, can I ask you about this? Uh, uh, you, you mentioned it before, this phrase you're using, um, and... Uh, this is the part in your uh, where you let's see well uh, let's say page sixteen so that when it starts with Orania uh, she died Orania. as a baby Orania mm-hmm. sorry mm-hmm. Orania That's right. she died mm-hmm. as a baby and then mm-hmm. you have a, a Greek phrase Zoisemas uh, mm-hmm. yes um, and uh, there are some. Um, uh, What's interesting to me here, and I'll, uh, well, I'll try to kind of put it like this. So, yeah, I have so it it's too. kind of a bit yeah. visible to the to the viewers as well. Uh, the way you, there is the so many things going on here. The form, the way uh, everything is like the space of the page. Also, uh, which uh, scripts are used, uh, uh, what's italicized, what's not, uh, and. Um, can you just say something about how what, how are you thinking yeah. here? Uh, sure. So this this is kind of a moment of um, the speaker speaking to the chorus because there is a Greek chorus in the in the piece, and it was when the Greek chorus showed up and started talking that the form of the 
of the whole book started to come into focus for me. Um, so in, in performance, the way it happens is the speaker is at one side of the stage and there's choruses in a group at the other. And the speaker is asking the names of all of these people, Urania, Yanis, Stella, Panayotis, right? And the chorus is answering what happened to them. So uh, Urania, she died as a baby. And then Zoyasamas is the phrase that we say. It's like, um, you know, it's interesting because in American culture, people say, I'm, I'm sorry for your loss, which to me is a divider in a certain way. Like, it's like, I'm sorry for your loss, but it's yours. It's not it's mine. Yours, yeah. It's still mine. Yeah. Right. Yeah. But I'm, I'm empathetic for you, but I'm not feeling it, but I'm feeling for you. Right. But Zoyasamas is, we're in this together. Here we are. Zoyasamas is, um, uh, life to all of us who are left living. Um, you can also say Zuisa Sas, which is life to you, um, which is another thing that, that people say. Um, and may her, the memory be eternal is what's said in the Mimosama, which is the, it's said in all of the, um, and, um, and the Tresarios, which are the prayers for the dead. And so, um, and that's also said, may, and I know in, in Jewish culture, may their memory be a blessing. I think every culture has, there must be one also in Bosnian, right? I mean, yeah, every culture has that, has those sayings. And so this is a situation in, at this moment where the speaker is asking the chorus, what has happened to my community? What has happened to my ancestors? And the chorus is answering. And they're all, and they are all saying we are, but we are left in this together. We are in this together. We are in this together uh, over and over again. And so, and I was trying to convey that on the page, which can be a little bit difficult, right? <laughs> yeah. Um, so in performance, what usually happens is that the speaker, who's usually me, is saying the names of the, of the, uh, the people that she's asking about, the chorus is answering either uh, collectively or individually chorus members are answering. And then um, the speaker is saying Zoisimas while the chorus is whispering, may their memory be eternal. Oh, okay. Simultaneously. Um, so we are to imagine. Yeah. So it's, post- ha- it's all layered. Yeah. So it's being layered on top okay. of it. It should be yeah. that you're hearing them all at the same time. Oh, I yeah. see. Yeah. So I see how, like, on the page, you you try to indicate that. So it's not easy to figure it out. But I mean, you you have some effect of it, uh, but the oral, and some, yeah. uh, the audio. Mm. And sometimes you can't. We can't do it. We can't have it be simultaneous because it just sounds muddled. And so, the, I mean, I so the Zoisemas and may her memory, memory be eternal comes right next to each other, sort of. But um, some of it is that I was trying to indicate different speakers. And some of it is that I was trying to indicate different levels of speech, right? That we might say this more softly. Um, we're not going to shout this part. Right. Um, and also in performance, there's a, there's a lament, there's a, a, um, um, a, a chant, um, Agnia Parthene, which is a, a chant that's used in the Greek church. Then, so there's a, a low-level drone of chanting going on underneath it at the same time, um, done either by monks or the cantors or, or whoever's in the space. Yeah. 
we know we recently did the, we just did this piece in September actually um, at um, at this uh, shrine for Saint of uh, Saint Nicholas, which is in at Ground Zero in New York, and it it's a it was a a small vi- looked like a village church that came down when the second tower came down during nine eleven, and um, it's taken that com- it's a Greek church and it's taken that community twenty two years to. Um, rebuild it and they've rebuilt this beautiful shrine that is lit up all the time and is there as a place for oh it's a greek orthodox church but it's really there as a place for anyone to come and have to pray to have quiet when they're visiting the um 9-11 memorials and so we were asked to come and do a short history of anger because they're starting a, a a series at that church um um about religious genocide and about um, uh, religious persecution. And so they asked us to come and perform that, perform it. It was amazing experience, just amazing. You know, we were to get to rehearsal every day. We were going through the the memorial at nine for for nine 11. And, um, you know, we were at ground zero all, all day, every day. And it was um, moving on so many levels that I can't even articulate and there were two cantors who sang that part. And the church itself is beautiful. Um, so, uh, um, and, and it's all marble. So the sound was just extraordinary. And that moment of having them sing the Agni Parthene was really a, probably a highlight of my life because it was so beautiful and their voices were so incredible. And the, 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 the dome of the, of the church just filled with it. And that's what I was trying to have happen, like on the page, which is impossible, yes. of course, to have happen yes. on the page. But there was that moment of having it realized, and so that was really lovely. Yeah, yeah. I mean, you you tried to uh, indicate uh, that you are drawing on so many forms and heritages of, of you know the art of the expression, uh, and I, I wish I could uh, experience what you just described I think uh, that that would be amazing for for all of us to uh, to experience that uh, and again the process you are talking about uh, the uh, the way you did it but uh, here uh, you you call it a hybrid work so uh, I'm I'm trying to I'm wondering about uh, the relationship between love and form mm-hmm. uh, and there is a, a uh, the form of the play, uh, the poetic form, poetry, uh, there is, uh, of course, a strong indication of that it is oral. Uh, yeah. Yeah, so this kind of oral written uh, and that they're complementing each other so much. Uh, so can you say something about that? Like, uh... um, well, part of it is that there are many voices at work in the piece. Um, and again, it's like, there, it's in English mostly, but it's still multilingual to me because there are different kinds of people speaking, um, and I'm not exactly sure. You know, there might the ancestors are speaking, and all kinds of people are speaking in this piece, and I tried to just become the conduit for that um, and listen as deeply as I could to um, to those voices, um, um, and. I had to give myself permission to move outside of any kind of received form because I could not contain this material. 
it was dictating to me what it had to do. I had to just be receptive to it. Um, and so, um, trying to figure out how to orchestrate it on the page was really interesting. Um, and, and you were there when we first had a chorus speaking and it was very clear that there were going to be, there had to be more than one person to say it out loud. And many of the stories, of course, came to me as oral histories. My grandmother, then my cousin sat with me for hours and told me about Smyrna and, um, and then I went and did research in, in Greece and listened to other oral histories. So this, the actual sound of people's voices was really important to me. And, and that's part of what happens in performance is different people. Because we every time we do it, we work with members from the community that we're in. So different people bring different things to it, right? And um, And when we did it in New York, it was all Greek the chorus was all Greek people, Greek or Greek American people. So they could actually pronounce the Greek, which was really good. Fantastic. <laughs> yeah, yeah. And they knew, um, you know, they knew about this. And so they were coming from a very different place. Um, I, I'm sorry, Adnan, I think I've forgotten exactly what the question was, but I, I think it had to do with form. Yeah. Oh, and that was the other thing. When, um, when I decided to try to stage it and I asked, um, I asked this the, the theater director, who happens to be my partner, um, to to work with it. It was so fascinating to me what he did, because th- I was still working on it at the time, right? I was because it, it took me a long time. I worked on it for years and years, and there were placeholders in the piece that I hadn't written yet that the chorus considers something, and I knew that there was something there, but I hadn't actually written it. And when I gave it to him, he saw things that should be happening with the chorus in those moments, even though there was no language there. And so what he, so for me to be able to see what he started to do with it, that he created these of this whole other dimensionality for the piece, he saw and heard something other than what I saw and heard. Um, And so that process was also really interesting um, to shape it into a, a performance. And each time, um, especially early on, the first chorus really helped create what it was going to look like and sound like. Um, but going from the page to, um, you know, to the stage was really uh, a different, it's a different thing. And then because we were already um, performing parts of it, I started to hear something else. I started to hear other, actually the actors who had been, or the performers who'd been doing it, I started to hear their voices in my head as I was writing some of the chorus parts. So then there was all this layering of history going on because I was hearing the original chorus, which were kind of ancestors, and then I was hearing people who were speaking that, that language in the present, and then I was writing, and I was revising and making other pieces. So it became this kind of, um, interchange really at all these levels between the present and the past and the imagination and the lived and the, the actual experience, which was, you know, my, the people who lived through it, their voices speaking, which I had, you know, listened to. So it became, um, a many, the, the form just, um, had to try to accommodate all of that. Um, 
Yes, because uh, in a sense that's uh, keeping it alive. That's the, uh, this is so for me so visible in the book itself uh, uh, in the written form uh, exactly because it seems to me that it embodies those processes that you've gone through uh, and all those different forces that contributed to this so that it feels as a communal experience uh, although you know it's it's you know, there's one author, but it feels like a communal work. Uh, it feels like a communal experience. Yeah. I'm grateful to hear that, actually, because that's um, that's important. It's important mm-hmm. to me that I I feel like I was the conduit, but that's what all I was was the conduit. Yeah, I mean, that's I was very like the note taker. Yeah, 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 yeah. If I may yeah. say, yeah, yeah, um, yeah, I was the note taker. <laughs> No thinker, yes, yeah, uh, which is which is best, of course. Uh, I, mm-hmm. I I feel that every time I've uh, you know written something that I feel is uh, uh, well, what I feel is good is usually that which uh, came through some kind of um, uh, collaboration or, or intimate work with someone. Uh, mm-hmm. uh, so I, I think that's felt in the text uh, throughout. And uh, of course, the way you hybridize it, the way you you use, you, you see that the, this form, you know, it needs the poetic, for the, the play itself needs the poetic form uh, and not stage directions or any of those right. kinds of conventions, right? So it really, you're drawing on the best of all art forms that, that work together. What are the elements of those art forms uh, that together work in uh, in chorus, in in like um, in symphony of it? Yeah. It was. There are very. There are many interesting moments where um, the director was kind of pushing it to, towards more theatricality, and I would be like, "Oh, mm. okay, I see." And then, and then he actually. Also started to dial back theatricality and was saying, you know, this is too much. It doesn't call for this. It calls for something that the the language needs to be just, you know, the language is doing it. We'll just, you know, let's dial this back a little bit. Um, Um, And until we found a place kind of in between, right, that uses the, you know, the power of spoken language and Mm. and pictures. I mean, the 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 shared experience of a performance, right. Um, but keeps it, you know, more in the world of readers theater or. And I appreciate this, that it captures the, the, both the memory and love in ways that like, I mean, there is a kind of a distrust of uh, the oral in, uh, let's say the academia, it's the material Mm -hmm. evidence, the written stuff. And so, so you tend to neglect the importance of, uh, oral transmission, and uh, and and how that carries uh, all these things that are important. Uh, that, that that's something like oh, we cannot deal with that because that's it's not material enough. We cannot. It's intangible, right. but 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 it's essential. Yeah. It's also you know inflection, right? I mean, inflection is is tells us everything, and so to hear someone speak about their experience uh, as opposed to seeing a transcription of it completely different. Right. So you, there's so many layers of understanding that happen by listening to the voice um, and being present, being present with that voice 
as opposed to, I mean, I, you know, I, I, of course, also love the page and I love to, you know, I love the silence of the page and, and, and that experience of being alone with the work or be in, being in communication with the voice on the page, right? In this kind of solitary way, there's, there's something quite important about that and, and magical about it as well. But they don't, they're not mutually exclusive. Um, they give each of those experiences give a different kind of, of resonance. And, um, you know, I think, and I, you know, the academic approach is it really interesting because I read a number of, um, books that were written by British, British, um, uh, scholars about Smyrna. And then I went to Greece and, um, talked to a bunch of people <laughs> and went to the um, center for Asia, Mer Asia minor studies. And um, they had all, all kinds of oral histories and other things there. And the difference is marked. I mean, it's a very marked difference between how a scholar looks at something like this and how, um, how even someone who is uh, not necessarily someone who lived through it, but is trying to understand and tell the narrative of what happened. Like, um, Giles Milton, he wrote a book called paradise lost about the, um, the Levantine community in Smyrna and what happened there. And th it's just, they're completely different kinds of, um, of testaments to what happened. Yes. Right. Yes, indeed. Um, <clears throat> Oh, I'm enjoying. I'm enjoying this so much. Uh, you know, I'm. I'm really. Uh, is really sick of it. It's so beautiful. There's so much to, to talk about. I do want us to to talk about food. Mm. I love, love talking food. about food. Yes, <laughs> let's talk about food. Uh, it's it's present in the in the book, of course, a lot, and uh, there are these. Uh, uh, there are lots of things that. Uh, seem to me that are uh, common to different cultures. Uh, there are things that, uh, you know, we have in Bosnia, same names as well, maybe mm -hmm. slightly different. So, uh, uh, and uh, let's begin with coffee, please. <laughs> okay. So, the, you know, so you had it in the opening of the book. I mean, and, right. and I thought, okay, well, this is brave. To, to, to have a scene which describes how you make coffee. And of course, it was, you know, Greek coffee, Turkish coffee, Bosnian, we say it's Bosnian coffee, you know, so we right. appropriate it, you know, this, this, but it's the same way of making it. Right. Uh, it, it reminds me also of this song, which is, uh, um, there is this melody that is common to many of our cultures. You find it in Bosnia, in Turkey, in Greece, in, uh, I think in Bulgaria, Serbia, and lots of places. Same melody, local text, local lyrics. Uh, and everyone thinks this is the most authentic local thing <laughs> that there is. Right. So this is ours. This is what defines the essence of who we are, you know. Right. Uh, everyone really, and you really feel it. I'm not, I'm not, uh, you know, you really do feel this captures the Bosnian soul or, you know, the Greek right. soul or the Turkish soul. Right. And it does. Right. I, I don't it doubt does. that. Mm -hmm. uh, so, so that scene in the beginning where you, uh, uh, well, you make coffee. Uh, we make coffee. Yes. Right. Can you, can you read Greek that and, and then, then tell us about that? Let's, if you begin that just a bit. Um, 
Some say clockwise, some say tipped away from the handle, but quick flick of wrist, she flipped the cup upside down on the saucer, laughing, circled the cup in the air three times. First, brew the coffee thick and dark and sweet, and sit together, the women. First, warm the water in the briki, spoon coffee and sugar. First, allow the coffee to sink, then stir and heat until the coffee foams up, and lift from the stove, and it foams again, and lift again, until it is steaming in each cup, and you sit together. And finally, the cup lifted away, the grounds painted down the sides. Ah, she would say, you have bad luck in your future. Ah, she would say, you must go home. Ah, she would say, there is happiness flying toward you. There is a bird. The grave must be cleaned. A marriage ring. There is money. Yes, uh, all of it. Like all of it uh, that you capture here. The, uh, the, in a sense, the mechanics, uh, but also the significant. What is it for the ritual, uh, which mm-hmm. is not just uh, the joy of that, that that coffee, that beverage, but also the communal experience of. Uh, you know, looking into the future, so using the cup to uh, in, in the, the pattern as, uh, you know, ways of... Uh, to read. Yeah. No, go ahead. Go yeah, ahead. It's just kind of... Uh, uh, we, we have... Everyone feels that really intimately. So, yeah. So let's begin with that, the, the food and the, the, the so much love. Well, you know, you have to know how to make coffee. Yeah. You do. You just have to know how to make coffee. If you yes. don't know how to make coffee, yeah. you're in trouble. <laughs> That's right. Yes. Culturally, yeah. you're in big trouble. Big and you trouble. have to be able yeah. to make this coffee, yes. which is originally, really, it was Turkish coffee, right? Yeah. But yeah. then we call it now Greek coffee. You yeah. call it Bosnian coffee, yes. right? Yeah. But Absolutely. I think it originated in Turkey. But, um, I'm sure, yes. Yeah. yeah. And um, you, you definitely need to, you know, because like I was not coffee drinker because I was, uh, you know, sensitive to caffeine. Uh, but, you know, if you are married in a Bosnian family, you know, your mother-in-law will make sure that you know. You know right. so, so, that you, right. so I, I was a slow learner, but, um, but good. <laughs> yeah. yeah. And it's a, and then the, you know, the, the, Reading of the coffee grounds is a really important thing, right? Where they turn the yes. coffee up, the cup upside down afterwards, and then they mm. read the grounds. Which I've never developed facility for how to read them, but I was—I've been—I've had them read many times, right? Yes. Yeah. Oh, I have—I wouldn't know at all what to look at, but they can see well, all kinds of things. Yeah. Right. Yeah. Right. Um, so you know, I—I th- I think um, food is. And sharing of food. I mean, I, I can't think of anything that expresses love more completely than that, um, than, than create, making food and, um, and then sharing food because it has everything to do with, um, all the things we've been talking about, right? It has to do with culture and passing on traditions and sustenance and attention and, um, uh, gathering together and sharing, right? And, and then literally feeding someone, um, seems it's just, um, it's the essence for me, it's the essence of love. And it's the way that I personally express love most completely, I think, in, in some ways in my life. Um, and so it was really important. And food in Greek culture is huge. I mean, it's just huge. 
So as it is, in, I'm sure, in, you know, in most Mediterranean countries and Eastern European countries, right? It's just, and it's, it's, it's woven into the culture in a way that um, is so central that it becomes almost um, taken, I mean, almost taken for granted, I think, in a certain way. I mean, it's so important that it's, and it's, everything revolves around food. So, um, so also not having it, um, you know, being displaced, starving, that, that's a huge, it's huge, right? It's huge, of course, for anyone. Um, but so I think that some of my, you know, the way that food keeps showing up in, in the book and is because it's, it's, I mean, I make this joke that I think I'm thinking about food all the time because I'm, I'm thinking about the next meal I'm going to make or the, you know, what, what do I have in the house that I can do with this? Right. And it's also a form of creativity, right? It's, it's so, and it's so much fun that, um, it's all the good parts of what love is. It's all the, you know, all the one, there's no conflict. It's all, it's all, you know, it's all the good part. And, the and to feed someone else seems to me the most, um, really the most essential way, uh, expression of love. Yeah. I think uh, nothing more needs to needs to be said. I think that's a, that's a perfect way to uh, to wrap it up to to oh. end on a on a note of um, since we've traveled from that first question, what is love? Uh, where you've uh, you know, uh, and I knew that things would happen throughout the conversation, and that we would arrive mm -hmm. at uh, something interesting and uh, slightly different, but also very very kind of in tune with what we started with. Uh, so thank you so much, Joy, for this uh, this conversation. Thank you. It's been such a pleasure. Such a pleasure, Adnan. <laughs>